0: thank you amen I want to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word please open it to Psalm 23. This morning our focus will be verse 6 we've spent six weeks just working our way through this very familiar Psalm it's been my prayer that God has taken these familiar words and has done a work within us reminding us of who he is and I timed this so that we would end on the Sunday before Thanksgiving with this last verse in our minds, and it's my hope and my prayer that this verse will be like a, a runway leading us to take off into Thanksgiving. So when you gather with friends, family on Thursday, that it won't just be a general thank you, Lord. That maybe based on Psalm 23, verse 6, you can start dealing with some specifics that you can thank God for. And use this gathering this meal as a way to give testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I have no doubt that many of you will be gathering with family members that do not know the Lord or if they know the Lord they're not walking with him and in the simple act of giving thanks the Lord can use our praise to draw people unto himself for the Herods we are very thankful this past week has been an extraordinarily good week uh, Emma has been very alert, very responsive. Uh, she had three sessions of therapy this week. One of them she was kind of sleepy in, but the other two, she was just knocking it out of the ballpark, being alert, responding. so we are just uh, very, very thankful for what God has been doing as she gets over over these illnesses that caused her to be hospitalized. Psalm 23, Let's read together all six verses. As I read aloud, you follow in your copy of God's word. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray, asking God's blessing upon the proclamation of his word. Father, this morning we have sung, it has just blessed my heart. We have been reminded, Father, of the grace you give us, that we can see your truth, see your light, because, Father, our testimony is that if you had not opened our eyes, we wouldn't have seen the light. Father, we have given testimony, Lord, that we lean on you, and your arms are everlasting. They never fail. We have given testimony of our hope. Our hope, Father, that one day we will indeed leave this world behind and we will dwell with you in the new heaven and the new earth, Lord. And I can't help but pray as the Apostle John prayed, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father Michael has reminded us that we can truly say you are good. Even in the adversities of life, you are good. And Father, this morning as we look at verse 6 of this 23rd Psalm, we ask you to quicken our hearts with its truth. Father, I pray that you wouldn't allow the familiarity of these words to rob us of their meaning. Help us to be able to say with David that goodness and mercy will follow us and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Wanda Ditch did what many grandparents would do. She wanted to be sure that her grandson was going to be attending Thanksgiving dinner. So, being a grandmother that was hip with all the technology, she sent him a text message. But she had forgotten one thing. Her grandson had changed his phone number. So he didn't get her text message, but 17-year-old Jamal Hinton did. Well, it didn't take him long to figure out the mix-up that the message had gone to the wrong person but as they were getting ready to finish their text Jamal sent one more text with a question could I still come get a plate? and Wanda responded just like most of us would absolutely come by the house and I'll be glad for you to eat with us now of course this story took off on social media And it was kind of that good news, feel-good story of the day. But listen to Jamal's words. He said, I'm thankful for all the nice people in the world. I never met her. And she welcomed me into her house. That shows me how great of a person she is. Now here's the connection I wanted to make with what Wanda did to our text. Jamal said, the fact that she invited me into her house shows what a great person she is. God has invited us into his house. In fact, that invitation is really in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And verse 6 shows the continuing hospitality that God gives. So the very fact that God invites us, that he invites me into his house, that he prepares a table for all of us, reveals how great God is. It reveals how generous He is, how gracious He is. And that should propel us to give thanks unto God. That should move our thanksgiving. Because the reality is, if God had never done anything else for us, the fact that He invites us to know Him and to dwell with Him is reason enough to give praise unto Him. But there's more. In fact, there are two things out of this passage, this verse That I want us to look at that hopefully, as I said, will propel us to give thanksgiving with more passion. The first is this. To be thankful for God's faithful provision. To be thankful for God's faithful provision. Notice verse 6 begins with surely. That's a statement of certainty. Confidence. No doubt. There's no maybe. He didn't begin by saying, It's possible that goodness and mercy will follow me. He didn't start by saying, Maybe goodness or mercy. This is a statement of confidence that God's going to provide the goodness and the mercy that he needs. So the question comes then why is David so confident? I mean, David knew adversity, he knew struggles, he knew family turmoil. I mean, he knew it to the extent that one of his own children rose up in rebellion against him, trying to remove his father from the throne. David knew adversity. But he is confident that despite that, goodness and mercy will follow him. Why? Because of God's loyalty, God's character. He knew that God had been faithful. And for David, God's faithfulness was not some theological abstract thought. He had lived God's faithfulness in reality. He knew God's faithfulness because of God's actions. I would remind you that David there in the valley of Elah faced Goliath. And what was it David said when he faced this giant? He said, I come against you in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I come to you in the name of the God of Israel whom you have defied. And David had experienced God's faithfulness as he stepped out in obedience to God. He knew God's provision in the wilderness. He knew victory over, over the enemies. So David could look back to the Valley of Elah as one example of how God had provided for you and I. We don't look at the Valley of Elah. We look at the Hill of Calvary. And we know that because of what God did in providing salvation for us, He is not going to forsake us. I'll remind you that Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? If God gave his son for us, then why would he withhold any goodness from us? Therefore, we have reason to be confident In God's goodness. The word goodness is one that we trip over. We trip over it because we don't always see how tab A of life fits into slot B of this, this truth. Goodness means that which is pleasing, valuable, useful. Goodness isn't always pleasant, but it's what is useful. It is what will be for the welfare of the person experiencing the moment. You could define goodness as this. It is being given what we do not deserve. That is goodness. It is being given something we do not deserve. In other words, we don't merit God to work for our welfare. We have rebelled against him in our sinfulness, but yet God works to bring about that which is in our best interest for the sake of his kingdom. Now, we keep in mind that even in adversity, the greatest goodness that God has given is his salvation. He has saved you. And nothing can change that. That pinnacle in the New Testament where Paul says neither height nor depth nor, nor angel nor demon nor anything in heaven or upon earth can remove us, can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But it also reminds us of this, that the goodness of God means our adversity has a purpose. And we may not always see that purpose, but faith is knowing that in the midst of that, God is at work well lay out the options if you don't believe that God is at work in adversity then you're faced with really meaninglessness then what does adversity mean what does it accomplish if you don't believe in God and you don't believe he is working all things for the good of those that love him who are called according to his purpose then what hope do you have in adversity do we just lay out and say it's karma well, the truth is if we really got what we deserved, life would be much more difficult. No. For the believer we say God is at work even in adversity for our good for our welfare because that is what surrounds us. Our suffering is simply a part of God's tapestry. And there are moments where God allows us to see how things fit together. One of my mother's favorite authors was Corrie Ten Boom. I think she had every book that Corrie Ten Boom wrote. And of course, the classic of the hiding place. If you're not familiar with Corrie Ten Boom's story, she was a a young lady when World War II began and her and her family hid Jews in the hiding place to keep them safe from the Nazis. Eventually, however, the Ten Boom family were caught and arrested they were sent to concentration camps throughout Germany and Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in Ravensbrück. They were able through a variety of means to smuggle a Bible into their barracks. But that wasn't the only thing that came into their barracks. Their barracks were soon infested with fleas. Not just a few, but a full-out infestation so bad that the guards would not come in to the barracks itself. Now, could you imagine that's where you live, sleep, everything, and you have nothing. The guards wouldn't even come in. One day, as they were gathered around reading the Bible in this barracks, Betsy looked up at her sister, Corey and said, "Corey, do you realize how good God is? He sent these fleas to keep the guards out so we could read the Bible and pray and worship without worrying about getting caught. Isn't God good for sending these pleas? I don't know if I'm there yet. But you see how she saw God's providence in that moment? Even in that adversity, God is at work in all things to be confident of His goodness and to be confident of His mercy. Surely goodness and mercy this is a place where the translation to me is very interesting. The word for mercy there is the Hebrew word hased. It's a word that's used frequently in the Old Testament, over 250 times, and it's a word that in other places is translated steadfast love, faithful love, covenant love, a love that does not fade, but here it's translated mercy. That's part of the, the, the linguistic umbrella that it covers. Because God's faithful love is an expression of His mercy. And goodness and mercy are corollaries that balance one another. If goodness is getting something that we do not deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And it's translated mercy to emphasize that, that there's this balance. It is God giving us more than we ever deserved, and His mercy is withholding what we do deserve because here's the question do you and i deserve for god to be faithful to his covenant to us do we deserve that now to be very candid there are two or three places in johnson city that i simply i will not frequent these businesses because of a bad experience there my kids will joke with me and they will say dad that one's made the list hasn't it yeah it has because somebody was either rude to me or the service wasn't good so I have not now you have your list too something happened somebody mistreated me or was rude or didn't give good service so I've said I'm not going back in there you ever think if God operated on an instance like that you've lost your temper one too many times I'm done that's it Your worship has been too lackluster for too long. That's it. I'm not coming back. Do you ever just thank God that he doesn't do that? That God does not say, that's it, I'm done with you, I am tired. But God is merciful. God is merciful to us and he is faithful to the covenant even when you and I are faithless. Even when we continue at times to struggle, he still holds on to us. And in fact, that is what should move us in worshiping him. I mentioned a moment ago that the word has said is used over 250 times in the Old Testament. Over half of those are in the Psalms. When it came time to sing and to praise God, one of the foundational truths that caused them to praise God was his faithfulness, that he did not abandon us, that he is faithful in his love. That's why in Isaiah 5410 it says, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. The world may change, but God's mercy doesn't. Now these two qualities, goodness and mercy, are connected to God just like sunbeams are connected to the sun. They flow, they emanate from God. That's why in Exodus 33, whenever Moses said, show me your glory, God says, I'll make my goodness pass in front of you. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. They are part of who God is. So it's not a stretch to say if goodness and mercy are following us and goodness and mercy flow from God, then it is God himself that is around us. Now when it says that goodness and mercy follow us, it doesn't mean that they are pursuing us, trying to catch us. As if we're running thinking, man, goodness and mercy, they're catching up with me. The idea of following us is the idea of surrounding surrounding us. The best image I could use to convey this goes back to a comic strip. Remember the Peanuts by Charles Schultz? There was one character in it called Pigpen. Pigpen represented that little boy who could find dirt no matter where he was. He could be in a place like this and Pigpen would come out and he would be just overflowing with dirt. He was just attracted to dirt like metal to a magnet. And wherever Pigpen went in the comics... There was a dust cloud around him, wherever he walked. Ironically, in Charles Schultz's world, Charlie Brown was the only one who showed kindness to Pigpen. And I couldn't help but think how God shows kindness to us when we're Pigpen. But that's another sermon. It's the idea that God surrounds us with goodness and mercy, He surrounds us with these things. So why not translate it surround? It wouldn't be wrong. Surely goodness and mercy shall surround me. But I think the image of following is trying to communicate something. In fact, in that image of following, David is tying these two metaphors together. Remember, the first and primary metaphor of this psalm is God as a shepherd. The secondary metaphor is in verse 5 of God being a host. And I think in verse 6 with that word follow, he ties them together because a good shepherd would often employ sheepdogs to help rescue if you've ever seen a sheepdog at work it's an amazing thing i remember when jody and i visited the fort worth uh, stockyards to, to visit a rodeo one time and there was a demonstration going on of a sheep dog rounding up sheep and it was incredible to watch we actually own an Australian shepherd and I have watched Lady really round up two chihuahuas and it's amazing to watch the idea is this, the shepherd is at the front leading and the sheep dogs are at the back rounding up stragglers Rounding up the sheep that are starting to wander off. That the shepherd's at the front and he may not see it. But around the back are the sheep dogs that are are yipping and biting and pushing the sheep back in line. Isn't it good to know that behind us as sheep that wander off. is God's goodness and mercy hurting us. Getting us back in line. Leading us. But it also communicates protection. Not only did the sheep dog work behind the pack to guide and to lead those who wander away in, they were meant to slow down the enemy. They were meant to fight off anything that would be following the sheep that would pose a danger or a threat. God's goodness and mercy not only rescues us, it protects us from those things that would follow us to destroy us. Think about all the possibility of things that could be following you. Things that could be nipping at your heels to destroy you. Guilt from the past. That's a big thing that follows a lot of people. Whenever I think about our past sins being brought back to our minds, I think of the opening line from the year 2000 film, The Patriot, where Mel Gibson's character, who is a leader in a guerrilla warfare, says these words. I long feared that my sins would return to visit me the cost is more than I can bear. There are a lot of us that live with that fear. Can I get past my past? What about the mistakes I've made? The sins that I have committed? Guilt brings with it condemnation and shame. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from our sin, our guilt, And our shame. It does that because Jesus took your guilt upon the cross. It does that because Jesus stood condemned. When you and I deserved condemnation. Jesus took our penalty upon the cross. So that according to Romans 8.1. We can say there is now no condemnation. No shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. I always love the image in the Gospel of John. Where Jesus is face to face with the woman caught in adultery. Caught in the act. The Pharisees are ready to stone her to death. And Jesus of course says, Okay, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. And then one by one you can hear the thuds of the stones hitting the ground as the the Pharisees leave. So it's just Jesus now face to face with this woman caught in the sinful act of adultery. In my mind I see Jesus kneel down beside her to lift up her chin and he looks at her and he says woman where are those that condemn you and through tear stained eyes she looks and she says they're gone no one's condemning me and he says neither do I go and sin no more You don't have to bear the shame and the guilt of past sins. Jesus offers us, by faith in Him, a new heart, a new standing before Him so that we can be righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. There's another thing that often follows people we're not even aware of. and That's judgment. Psalm 83.15 says this, God's judgment pursues the wicked. It's almost if there's a stark contrast. You can either be pursued by the goodness and mercy of God or you can be pursued by His judgment. It's a very stark divide. R.G. Lee, a famed preacher from the 20th century who pastored Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis preached a sermon that is still publicized today. The title of it was simply this payday someday someday we will all stand before God we will not escape the judgment seat of God And at that day, what will be our hope of being found not guilty? It won't be our actions. It won't be the the things that we have done because we are indeed guilty of rebellion against God. That day, our only hope will be that Jesus Christ has stood in our place and we have trusted Him for our salvation that He bore God's judgment on our behalf. That's why 1 John 4 says, perfect love cast out fear. When you are in the perfect love of God, you need not fear His judgment. And notice in this verse it says, these things will follow me all the days of my life. You're never out of God's goodness and mercy. Long days, short days, bountiful days, lean days, days where we are old or young, hard or easy. It does not matter because God's mercy will accompany those who are following Him. Be thankful for God's unfailing provision of His goodness and mercy. And be thankful for His unfailing promise. 6b, the latter part of verse 6 begins now, looking toward the future. I shall dwell. I will dwell. One day I will dwell. You can also translate that, I will return to the house of the Lord forever. It's the idea of inhabiting. I will dwell in the presence. It speaks of permanence. To a culture that was very familiar with nomadic way of living, this was a, a reassurance that one day your travels, your wanderings will be done, and you will indeed have a place of permanence in the house of God. Now this has to be looking to the future, because when David wrote this, there was no house of God. The Ark of the Covenant, and God's presence dwelt in a tent. So David is looking forward to the future, something bigger and better, something that will not fade. He is looking forward to be in the presence of God forever. The culmination of what David envisioned is described in Revelation twenty two twelve, 12, where it says that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple because God and the Lamb are with their people the whole of the new heaven and the new earth will be a temple, the house of God. Now, I think this is important because remember, this is not written from a place of ease. David recognizes, I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is reminding us, as Paul wrote, that these light. Momentary afflictions are preparing for us a weight of eternal glory. So it comes down to what are we going to live for? Now I wanted a way for us to visualize this and I'm going to recruit some help to do this. So I'm going to get Jackson Tumlin. Yes. Jackson come up here for a moment and, and Andrew. Andrew Weems would you help me out too? I want us to get a picture, a visual of what this means to say one day I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I want one of you guys to take this. Jackson, you take this, and I want you to go toward the American flag. When you get there, stand, and then, Andrew, if you will, take the rope from Jackson. I should have straightened it out beforehand. If you'll go with Jackson, when he gets to the corner, you take the rope, and then you go down to that corner. That's okay. Yeah, I, it's my fault. I didn't untangle it. This is Problem Solving 101 under pressure. And just think, you're getting it ready for the next service, too. There we go, we're getting it. Here we go. I'll take some of the slack out. Still in a nod, Andrew? All right. Here we go. Do you need this end here? There we go. Don't anybody leave. All right. That's fine. All right. If it'll give enough for you to make your way in that direction, there we go. All right. Now remember at the end of verse six, it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sometimes it's hard for us to to get in picture exactly what that means to say, we will live in the house of the Lord forever. And we can get caught up in living for the things of this moment, of living only for what happens and exists now. And what we need to remember as believers, we live for more than this moment. We have been placed in this moment for the purpose of pointing toward the kingdom. But this moment is not what should define how we live. All right. Guys, thank you for your perseverance. All right, here we go. This is going to be so worth it. It it is. It is. You all will talk about the rope illustration for months. I know Jackson and, and Andrew will never forget it. Yeah, you can thank me later. All right. And this is also an illustration of how life doesn't always unfold and untangle as easily as you want it to. All right. This will be enough, I think. we Will we'll, y'all keep working amongst yourselves? Now, here's the thing. This is a hundred feet of rope that I think we've mainly only got halfway unfolded. I want you to think of this rope. this white rope is representing eternity. This red part is life here now. This is about an inch and a half. The question that will come to us is this: Will we live for this inch and a half? Will we let this determine how we act, what we believe and how we respond? Or will we live for eternity? That's what David's laying in front of us. David is saying, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This hundred foot rope that stretches on around and even is twisted at times. He's saying, live for this. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So therefore, even when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I want to remember that it's brief. It's brief. It's it's an inch compared to a hundred feet of eternity. All right, guys, you can just drop it on the floor now. You can come back later because I know Jackson. Jackson will not give up. He will come back. Y'all can have, have a seat now. Thank you very much. What that means is this. If we live in the light of eternity, be faithful now. To take our stand for truth now. I've been reading a, a book and um, it's been disturbing on many different levels. But it's one that I, I needed to read. The name of it is called The Blood of Emmett Till. In 1955, Emmett Till was 14 years old and he had left Chicago to live with relatives in Mississippi for a summer. Emmett Till was accused of making a pass at a white lady. Her husband and brother-in-law then grabbed Emmett Till at 2 in the morning and horrendously beat him to death. When the time for the trial came, The whole question was, would there be justice? Sadly, the justice wouldn't occur on this earth because the men were found not guilty. But what amazed me is that the defense attorney and the judge were doing everything they could to be sure the trial was fair. And the defense attorney, I'm not the defense, the prosecution, I'm sorry, the prosecution, trying to charge these men with murder found four witnesses. But here was the problem. There were four African-Americans that had seen and had heard the beatings occurring. And the question was, how would they witness? Because to take the stand would be, in many ways, to write their own death warrant. One of them was a 17-year-old. He took the stand and courageously testified to the truth. Why? Because it was the truth and because he had been promised. And way had been made that he would be leaving Mississippi forever and would be taken to safety. He had the courage then to speak. In many ways, you and I are called to take the testimony, stand for our Lord. And when we do so, let's do so knowing we're not living for this red inch of tape. We're living for eternity to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that we can say with David, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These things of the world are fading. Would you bow with me in prayer right now? Father, there are so many things that we need to be thankful for. So let us start this morning with the truth that your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Father, let us dwell on the truth, Lord, that we will be with you forever. So forgive us for we live for the moment. Help us to live for eternity. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen.